Proctor here with some quick announcements before we get into this episode. I would like to let everyone know about CodeMesh, a London-based conference dedicated to functional programming and alternative tech. It is going to run November 3rd through the 5th, and some of the speakers include guests of this show, including Reed Draper, Jessica Kerr, and Richard Meinrich. CodeMesh has graciously offered listeners of this podcast a 10% discount off the price of the conference if you use the discount code FNGeekery10 when you register. To find out more about CodeMesh and to register, visit CodeMesh.io. That's C-O-D-E-M-E-S-H dot I-O. Second, if you enjoyed the episode with Martin J. Logan talking about Erlang, Erlang Camp has offered listeners of this podcast 15% off tickets, including the dinner with speakers option, when you use the code FNG15. To find out more about Erlang Camp and to register, visit ErlangCamp.com. That's E-R-L-A-N-G-C-A-M-P dot com. And I look forward to seeing you there. Lastly, if you thought episode 12 with Adi Bulbwaka was interesting, even if you didn't agree with everything he said, I want to let you know that Global Day of Code Retreat is coming up on November 15th. There are going to be code retreats held worldwide on that day, and there is a good possibility there will be one in your area. If not, and you are interested in hosting one, the organizers of Global Day of Code Retreat do a great job to help you with everything you need to know. To find out more about Code Retreat, and to see if there will be one in your area, go to coderetreat.org. That's C-O-D-E-R-E-T-R-E-A-T dot org. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Bruce Tate. Bruce, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm an author, kayaker, mountain biker from Austin, Texas, and primarily I'm a CTO that writes a little bit on site. For my day job, I do Ruby now, though we'll be moving into the Elixir language in the next couple of months here. But I think that's about it. So you said author, and that was one of the reasons I wanted to get you on, was you're the author of the book, Seven Languages in Seven Weeks, and you have another one coming out soon as well, right? I do. It's called Seven More Languages in Seven Weeks. And this has been an interesting series for me because all of my best books have been written around fear. And if you don't mind, I'll take a little bit of time to go way back and tell the story about the first such book, which was called Beyond Java. Now, this was an interesting book for me to write because I had basically spent a little bit of time with Prag Dave, the Dave Thomas that owns the Pragmatic Bookshelf Publishing Company. And he was turning me on to Ruby a little bit. And he's actually every bit as kind in person as he is in his online persona. But I started asking him more and more aggressive questions about Ruby because I was pretty confident in the Java stuff that I was writing at the time. And after some pretty drawn out conversations, I got a little bit more nervous about where Java was going and what it could and couldn't do. And had a couple of customers basically tell me that this stuff was too complicated for them to pick up. And I did a project with a guy named Justin Getland. He worked with Relevance at the time. And so now they are merged with Rich Hickey's company. Is it Cognitech? Is that right? Cognitech? Cognitech, right. Never can quite get that right. But Justin and I worked on a project with Ruby on Rails and had some pretty interesting performance numbers. And at that point, I asked Dave some aggressive question, like, surely Ruby can't do this. And he turns around and says, Bruce, shut up. 
do something non-trivial in the language and then come back and let's talk about it. And so I disappeared for a little while and wrote Beyond Java. So basically I was looking at technologies that I thought that I should be paying attention to. And of course, Ruby on Rails was one of them. I think I looked at Seaside and some other stuff. And I think Erlang too was on that list. But the idea was that I wanted to tell other Java developers that, hey, there's another world out there. And pendulum swings back and forth in a number of ways. And progress moves on from one paradigm to the next. And typing models change over time. And you guys like me, need to be paying attention to this stuff because there's some real power out there. At the time, there was a prevailing attitude that there was one true language. And if you lived and breathed in that one true language, then whatever the programming language lacked would be made up for with the overall community. And if you didn't support this language, no other languages could really achieve the critical mass to succeed. And this had kind of played out in the industry over the years with COBOL and Fortran and C and a handful of others. But I wanted to tell people that, hey, you need to pick your head up and start looking around. And so I got that feeling at the Java when I started coding Java. And really my intention was not to cut my Java career short, but to tell people, hey, Let's start paying attention and let's start learning really for the sake of learning. And then I went to Spain and there was a conference there that was put on by the people that did the server side. And there was a guy, a reporter, that asked me some questions. So he was kind of baiting me and I wasn't very experienced. And he asked me, so you must think Java is dead, right? You wrote a book called Beyond Java, which kind of has a strong implication. And I said, no, no, no. Nothing could be further from the truth. What I mean is dead like COBOL, not dead like else. So the next day, the very front page of the server side, there was an article that was titled, Bruce Tate says Java dead like COBOL. Um, <laughs> so that pretty much ended what I was trying to do in the Java space. So I started to move on to the Ruby programming language and got some clients that were interested in optimizing developer productivity, which I think that Ruby does very well, but didn't really need all of the things that, that Java had to offer. But I guess I was starting to feel some of the same things that I felt when I wrote Beyond Java four years later or so. And I noticed that there was a paper that came out a couple of years ago called The Free Lunch is Over that was really talking about the, the chip growth and chip density. Well, you can't get any thinner than two or three atoms thick. So we've had to stack cores, which means that basically the burden of doubling processor speeds falls now on the programmer rather than on the hardware side. So this paper scared me and some other things scared me. And I started thinking about what other languages would be next. And this time, it's not just a language that I was writing about with the original seven languages but more of a programming paradigm. Object-oriented programming was good in some ways, but it doesn't let us represent state in a way that works well with parallel processors, as your podcast listeners will know. And then I looked for what the next big language would be, and I realized that I really didn't see one yet. So rather than try to pick a winner, I did another book about learning called Seven Languages in Seven Weeks. And I really was doing this project 
for myself and didn't really expect people to respond to it in the way that they did. But what really happened was actually gratifying. People just kind of climbed into the boat with me and explored the languages. And the language creators were all happy to help. And in fact, I had six of the languages. I was able to publish an interview from them. And the seventh, there was a great story about prologue and how that was used for a project that was trying to track the intelligence of dolphins. Just a fascinating interview by Brian Tarbox. Anyway, the project has kind of grown from there. It seems that, like me, there are a lot of people that recognize that maybe we don't need to use a new programming language right now, but we need to understand what the industry has to say about things like programming models. And since then, the book's kind of extended those concepts. So you asked for a short answer, and I gave you a 10-minute one, but I like to tell the story. No, that's great. And speaking of stories, you kind of turned it into the story of a book kind of via evolution of programming languages, right? Because you start out with the standard object-oriented languages that people may or may not be more familiar with, and then you kind of start migrating to the functional and the pure functional languages, correct? Yes. Um, so, Proctor, you're pretty perceptive. Many people see this a 7 and 7 book as seven disjointed essays, and that's really not what we're trying to accomplish at all. What we'd like to do is tell a story about maybe where the industry is moving, like with the original Seven Languages book. For example, the first language in the book is Ruby, and that's my favorite language, but I think it's also, it represents the past, and that this is an object-oriented paradigm. And the next language in the book was I.O., and that's basically a prototype language, which looks object-oriented in some ways, but can be programmed in more of a functional way. In fact, the reason that I picked I.O. was that that was starting to happen in the JavaScript area. But I didn't want to teach JavaScript because it's very complicated to cover all of the different programming paradigms in JavaScript in, in such a tiny book. So I picked the smallest prototype language that I could find. And then we moved on to Prologue, which kind of got me away from comparative and into more of a declarative mindset. And then from there, I went to Scala and Erlang. And of course, Prologue was the foundation for Erlang. And there I went to three other functional languages. So I was very much trying to move the reader's head from an object-oriented place to more of a functional place. Do we want to touch on a little bit of what you thought about as you started? Because in the book you kind of outline it, but from when I've looked at it, I don't remember too much about you giving your thoughts as just a regular person on what you found neat and disliked about the languages. So would you mind touching on some of those topics for some of those languages in the first book, and then we can kind of talk about your second book as well? Yeah, that sounds great. So in the first book, I really didn't want to call any of the babies ugly. I think all of the languages are in there because they're beautiful and they have something meaningful to say and something interesting to contribute to the overall body of knowledge and research and programs and, and everything that we have to offer. I will say that I had a better time with some of the dynamic languages in the book and I had a harder time with some of the more strongly typed languages. So, for example, I really enjoyed the whole exploration process behind, say, I.O. and also very much for Erlang as well. But I struggled a little bit with Scala basically because I was trying to make 
strong typing work across two paradigms, and that was a very difficult transition for me. Partially because I was doing object-oriented programming in my regular job, so having to embrace just enough OOP with the functional programming with those type models was too much for me. I had a little bit of trouble with Haskell once I started to get into monads, and I really didn't do a very good job of explaining what they are because I really hadn't distilled that for myself yet. And I also had trouble with Prolog. In fact, it was pretty interesting when I initially approached Joe Armstrong. I asked him to look over my Erlang stuff, and he said, well, in your list, I see that you have Prolog too, so why don't you just send them both to me, right? And we have a review process at, with the publisher, and so we went through the formal review process. And so Joe sends back all this glowing commentary for the Erlang language saying, hey, I get the sense that the reader understands Erlang very well, when in fact I'd never really written any Erlang code, but was really feeling what Erlang had to offer. And then Joe also wrote that I don't get the same sense for Prolog. He basically said, this author has butchered Prolog. And after that point, I asked Joe to help me bring up this language. And he had some great ideas. And since then, we've been fast friends. And so basically, we got to know each other remotely over this language. And I didn't really meet him until I was speaking about the book in London. And in fact, four of the language creators or languages in the book were actually in the room first time I gave that talk. It was absolutely terrifying. I can see where that's definitely intimidating to be able to be presenting a rundown of a language in front of the language creators out of fear of getting a concept wrong and trying to teach everybody about a wrong concept. Yeah, and it's also intimidating for me to meet my heroes and have something interesting to say. I'm not really concerned about being wrong. I'm wrong an awful lot. What I want to be is interesting and relevant. And when I'm writing at 10,000 feet about something, these guys have created something just really stunning. I mean, these languages are all some of my favorites. So obviously a lot of my heroes were represented there. So yeah, it was a scary concept. So the book really wasn't about the languages themselves, though. It was about the process of learning them. So that's kind of how I got through it. And one of the things that we've done in some of the books it's been with a heavier hand and some with a lighter hand. Is We think that there's a problem when the reader goes from, say, page 86 in one language to a whole new language and a whole new paradigm in page 87. And what we've done to help ease that transition is to have a metaphor for each language. I heard you mention Mr. Miyagi in the last podcast. Well, Mr. Miyagi is our metaphor for fact because it's kind of a Zen-like, wax-on, wax-off, paint-the-fence way of learning a new language, right? So factor is this prefix notation, stack-based, concatenative language. And expressing ideas is very different from the Lisp-like or Ruby-like prefix or a infix language, basically because it's concatenative. So every time that you finish an expression, it's shoved onto the stack. That can be used as an argument for the next call. So everything feels a little bit different and strange. But when we had these metaphors, we found that our readers could more easily make a transition from one language to the next. It was a lot more easy for them to encapsulate fundamentally what was different. 
Yeah, I remember flipping through it the first time and looking at the quotes from the different characters. And that was something that just caught the attention on first browse without even quite realizing what you guys were trying to do there intentionally, but it kind of gave a good idea of, here's what this chapter is kind of about in the way of thinking, because I think it was, was it Closure offhand? One of them was Yoda. Yes, yes. And I want to say it was Closure because it's like, speaks backwards, but has a lot of wisdom in it kind of thing. Yes, yes, I like that a lot. And in fact, in the talk that I gave in London, this was called Mary Poppins Meets the Matrix, right? Because Mary Poppins was the character for Ruby, and Agent Smith in the Matrix was the character for Erling, and I kind of like those back-to-back. But I was also able to talk about a lot of other languages along the way, and there are some great ones, great comparisons. Like, you know, for example, I had Napoleon Dynamite as Pearl, and I had Horace Gump as Pascal. And I had the Griswolds as Visual Basic because it was easy to start the trip in Visual Basic, but kind of hard to finish. That was a lot of fun for me. But, you know, it looks like a cheap trick at the time. But I think that if your mind is always open and you're looking for learning channels and ways to take your reader on a journey that's a little bit more smooth than you did last time, then sometimes you stumble onto things that work, all gadgetry aside. I guess on the first book, what was your big epiphany kind of clicking through these languages? The reason I'm asking is because you're taking a second pass with books, and they're a little more functional now as well. And then you've also got a love for Elixir as well. So kind of as you went through this book, how did you find your way of thinking change across all these languages? Is there a point at which you're like, I've done two of these languages and now I get it? Or is it kind of like every language just helped? build on another, and you just kind of kept building that base? Well, even through the book, I think that my approach to many of the problems was an object-oriented programmer tries Haskell, right? Or an object-oriented programmer tries Scala. And some of the solutions that I coded had state built in, and they really shouldn't have. Like, I did a compass in Scala, and it was really a pretty ugly solution. So that didn't really come out until the review process. So Throughout the review process, I had a lot of these language designers reviewing some of these chapters. It was a really cool time for me because they could say, hey, wait, this is where you got it wrong. Or, hey, yes, you really captured the essence of that language. And so really, I was kind of nesting three different stories, right? The first story was where the industry is going. That's from language one to seven. The second one is that you're trying to tell a story with prose in each individual chapter. And third, you're trying to tell a story with code. So the storytelling in code was really a very pleasurable experience for me. And really, I think that that's why the books have caught on so much, because the readers get to go through that kind of exploration on their own. But yeah, probably the biggest thing for me, after I wrote the book, I noticed that I was coding Ruby differently. When I run across some JavaScript, I was coding that differently. That I would try to make fewer decisions actually in the method bodies. And that I would try to shoot exceptions off to a different path, maybe not with a formal exception mechanisms. You know, I was doing some things that were a little bit unorthodox in Ruby, but made sense in a grander functional setting. In fact, there's a talk by Dave Thomas at the Elixir conference where he talks about pattern matching, making decisions, and making your methods not just shorter, but also skinnier. 
and making more of your decisions in the function ways. I think that I made that transition after I wrote the first book and really wasn't able to articulate that revelation until I saw Dave Thomas's talk. If you haven't seen that talk yet, go pick it up with the ElixirCon keynote by Dave Thomas. Really, really cool concepts. So probably the biggest thing was two things. First, that each language that I read changed the way that I was working in Ruby. And I think that that's absolutely critical. We can grow as programmers by exposing ourselves to idioms in different places. And the second concept, I started to understand why Ruby was limited in the long haul. And it has nothing to do with what Matt's did with the original design. It has everything to do with where a computer design is going and needing to be able to multi-thread in a better, cleaner way. That sounds like a good summary of the first book, because you kind of touched on all the different languages a little bit at least. So then in your book that's coming out now, or you're working on and should be coming out relatively soon as far as book goes, because I've heard plenty of people talk about books schedules are as tentative as you can pretty much get just like software but do you want to kind of lay the foundation of the second book and kind of some of the things that kind of how your thinking has evolved from the first book into kind of where we are now because i know you take on even like more in-depth languages as well like you mentioned factor being in the second book which is another completely different way of thinking right yeah so First, let me say that after I wrote the first book, it was tremendously rewarding and very, very difficult. If you Google me, you'll see that I've written a lot of books. In fact, when I was doing more consulting, rather than compromise on rates, I'd do marketing. My way of marketing was to write another book. And I could basically get something out that was useful and interesting in two to three months. And the original 7 and 7 book, took closer to eight or nine months to really wrap up. So I told myself I'd never do this again. And I told myself at least there wouldn't be a need for another seven languages book for, you know, gosh, I mean, I covered all the languages I was interested in spending time with. So that book was around, what, about 2010-ish or something like that. And I started looking around and all of this interesting stuff was happening where the industry had basically said, hey, I see that there's interesting stuff here in Enclosure, which is a Lisp dialect fundamentally, with Haskell, which is very much a researchy language that deals in lazy semantics, but also rich typing. And in the process model, where you have very lightweight processes in Erlang. But these concepts were so very interesting to people that they started layering ideas on top. And in some incredible and interesting ways. So for Haskell, for example, one of the things that I'm watching now is something called dependent typing, where you can express a type and ensure types have their own sets of keywords. But you can also work values into dependent types and functions that operate on these values. For example, you can express a vector, which is a list of a fixed length, and say the result of concatenating two things together a vector of m and a vector of n is a vector of m plus n. So that plus operator expressed as part of the type is really, really cool. And it's very powerful. So so we included a dependent types language called Idris. And there were a number of these languages like this that were 
putting very interesting spins, and not just with the cursory or passing interest, but fundamentally powerful concepts in their own right that did things in, in these languages. So that where the languages in, in the last book were spread out across 40 years from, I guess, going all the way back to Prologue and all the way up to I.O. and Closure, this book has mainly focused on languages in the last 10 years. A lot of them have been developed in the last five. So where the story for the last book was, gosh, this object-oriented programming where we've spent most of our time and energy, this may be a dead end, and we may be moving to functional languages because we don't have any other choice. The narrative of this book was, hey, we've started to embrace this idea of functional programming, and we're starting to drive this programming model into interesting places that we never thought of taking it before. And some of those places are the browser, where JavaScript's great, but it does have some significant problems with the typing model. And it has some problems with expressing pure functional concepts and expressing things like reactive code. And if you change the way that you think about JavaScript, and you say, okay, well, now let's let this thing become our virtual machine for the browser then you open up the possibility of a whole new set of languages on the browser. And one of those is Elm. There's a guy named Evan Zeplicki. And he's created this language that is a beautiful representation of what you can do with a Haskell-type programming model, really an ML-based family language. And what you can do when you start to think, instead of in terms of callbacks, when you think about different compositions of functions. And when you stop thinking about individual values, and you start thinking about a function of values across time, then a lot of the complexity of typical types of problems that we solve kind of falls out. And then similarly, we talked about the dependent typing that solves a critical problem for all programmers in, in that our type model is not rich enough to capture some of the information that we'd like to capture. And in fact, there were two big aha moments when I was working with the interest language. The first one was when I found myself thinking more and more about the type system and less and less about the code. I stepped back and thought, hey, wait a minute, this is revolutionary. This language is changing the way that I think and making me think at a higher level. And the second big moment was when I actually had a compile error and then I looked at what I was trying to express in code, and I recognized, hey, wait a minute. This compile error was a logic error. It wasn't a syntax error at all. And the compiler just had enough information to know that, hey, this is supposed to be a vector, which is a transposition of M and N, and I logically got one of the axes wrong. And so that said, well, wait a minute, even if we're not ready for Idris, these ideas are important and they're going to come sometime. So anyway, there were a bunch of languages in there that were very interesting to me. And I couldn't attack this by myself. So I wrote with a set of co-authors and each one of those brought their own set of languages. So looking at the page for the seven more languages book on Pride Prague, and I'll include a link to the show notes, looking at the contents and extracts tab, just so everybody knows, is you cover Lua, Factor, Elm, Elixir, Julia, Mini Canron, and Idris. And 
we've had a number of people reference some of those languages. Mini Canron was William Byrd, who's will guest here, and we've had a number of people mention Idris, and then some of these others, and I know there's Elixir. And you mentioned ElixirConf as well. Do you want to kind of give a rundown of ElixirConf? Because you gave an interesting presentation there that I caught on Confreaks, which was talking about fear as well and the acceptance of some of these languages. Because I guess you were on the outskirts in the first book, and I guess to call most of these languages would probably be fringe. Yeah. And so your talk seemed like it would almost apply to any of the languages in the seven series books where because you were talking about fear and acceptance of the language to get it popular yeah so basically i think a couple of things are happening now one of the things is that fear is a barrier to adoption and those barriers get bigger when you're not just moving between languages but when you're also moving between programming paradigms but i think that fear is also a motivator for language adoptions for example if you can see right now that a lot of the cool kids are leaving the room, you know, in terms of object-oriented programming, because we recognize that object-oriented programming can't represent the types of programs that we need to write right now. The burden has shifted from hardware to software, and we, the programmer, we need to be able to write not just code with three or four concurrent threads, but to seamlessly manage thousands of threads to do the jobs that we need to do. So something else is going on too, though. One of the things that we're starting to see is that there's a pretty big mental barrier between many of the object-oriented languages that we need to write and some of the functional languages that we need to write. And it's more than just syntax, and it's more than just a programming paradigm, but we're also seeing people have to write distributed applications and concurrent or parallel applications for the first time. So I basically have a company that I run where I run the technology side and Paul Janowitz, the CEO, runs the marketing and operations side. And we're based on Ruby. We know we have to be based on something else. But the reason that we're based on Ruby is that it's the language that so far has best optimized my productivity. And as the issues that I need to address change, that becomes not as true, you know, much as it did with Twitter. They started with Ruby, and so thank God that they did, because that was able to get them to a point where they got enough adoption, and they were able to succeed. But Ruby kind of collapsed under the weight of the problem that they were trying to solve. We're very much in the same place, so I was looking for a new language. And the three things that I had to have, First, it had to have a syntax that made sense to me. I've tried to crack the list code a couple of times and really haven't been as successful as I'd like to be. So Clojure was, I wouldn't say out at this point, but I wasn't able to make Clojure work like I wanted it to. So I kept looking. Erlang, I really liked a lot, but when I started looking at things like OTP, I noticed that a lot of the boilerplate code that happened with Erlang happened with the special OTP boilerplate key in the Emacs editor, right? And I didn't want to do code generation, even if Emacs was that code generator. So the second major requirement was that it had to have a macro system so that I could capture all of that intelligence that was in that Emacs key 
and put that in a macro that is hygienic and safe, but also would let me use the language in a more sophisticated way so that I could work with bigger blocks that would let me build my systems faster. And the third thing that I really needed was concurrency, not just from the perspective of being able to run a couple of threads, but also to have lightweight threads and a lot of the things that Erlang has captured so well. And some of the things that go with that, like consistent garbage collection across all those threads and spawning and managing and monitoring for those supervision trees in Erlang are just so beautiful. I haven't ever seen anything quite like that. But Elixir was a language that brought the three together. And what was most interesting about Elixir to me when I first started exploring was that you could take this beautiful syntax and you could apply macros to it. Because my understanding before had been that Lisp was so successful with macros because the syntax tree in Lisp was a Lisp data structure, right? But in Elixir, you have a richer syntax, but the syntax maps onto a very beautiful, regular syntax tree, just like Closure does. So it's really the first time that I've seen that concept that you could have a rich, beautiful syntax with Closure-style macros. That kind of blew me out of the water. And then later, I started thinking that probably the secret sauce for Elixir is not just the Ruby syntax, which got me started, and not just the macro system, but it also has everything that I needed from the threading perspective, which is the Erlang process model, the OTP. Yeah, I've heard some interviews with people talking about Elixir, and Jose Valim is definitely one person I want to get in at some point. Maybe I'll time it around his 1.0 release of Elixir. But I've heard he kind of took the Erlang frame, because it's built on the Erlang VM, and I heard he kind of tried to take in some of the niceties of Ruby and as well as niceties of Clojure and kind of try and integrate a nice language that feeds in with influences from all three of those and then some more languages. Is that? Yeah. And in fact, it was kind of a cool moment when I met Jose. We were actually, we communicated a little bit and I've been interested in what he'd been doing. He had read the original seven languages, but I was a huge fan of this kid, really, I mean, very young guy that's developed so much taste. I mean, one of the things that you look for in language is that it includes the right stuff. But another thing that you need to look at is that it leaves the right stuff out, right? So there are some languages, and I'm not going to mention them by name, but you can see that everything, including the kitchen sink, is in there, right? And it muddies the language, and it muddies a lot of the intentions of the developer. But I'm a blues fan, and some of the best blues players are great, not because of all the notes that they can play, but they can crank them out. But the air that they leave in between the notes, that leaves a lot more room for interpretation. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so I think that what Jose is, is he's a guy with marvelous taste, and he really... It's been a great steward of the language in that he's kind and humble, but he's still able to say no. And he has a strong vision for the language. He knows exactly where he wants to take it. And I think that that combination is going to serve him really well. And one of the things that we're starting to see in the Elixir space is that this combination of the natural syntax with the macros is actually a game change. That basically you're saying these macros, which are hygienic, which means that they're always included explicitly and they don't change code throughout the whole compile tree. 
but only explicitly where you tell it to. So they're safer, but they're also in a rich enough language that can change the syntax query directly. There's almost nothing that you can't do in the macro. So that really what's happening is that the language, the speed of language development has ramped up sharply because the language is now created in Elixir itself that we're building in macros. And it's really not created in basic Elixir anymore, but it's created with other Elixir macros so that you're seeing the language ramp up with bigger and bigger building blocks. So you're starting to see things like not just OTP, but without the 125 line Emacs macro, but a macro that's actually included in the language. And then you're starting to see other simpler constructs pop up that use the same supervision tree like agents and tasks, but which are much simpler programming model for the user. So I'm very bullish on Elixir. I think it's going to be tremendously successful. In fact, I think the language might have reached its critical mass with the Elixir conference that was in Austin just a, about a month ago. Yeah, it's definitely talking with you about that definitely puts it higher on my radar. And to be honest, I was a little bit skeptical when I first heard about it, I guess a couple of years ago now, just because it's one of those first thoughts of, well, someone else is going off on their own to create their own language. And yeah, it sounds great in theory, but how's it actually going to play out? But the more I find out about it and keep it on the radar, especially because I've been playing with Erlang as well, it does sound like it's really a language to watch for. That sounds like it'll pick up quite a bit of steam in the near future. Yeah, I really think that right now there's a little bit of tension between the Erlang and Elixir communities, and necessarily so, right? Because if there's a language that's been as powerful and as useful as Erlang has, you want to defend it closely. But what people are starting to realize is that there's a tremendous synergy here. And some of the tools that Erlang has gone without for a long, long time become really easy when you have this macro type system. And that the interop between the languages is so smooth that you're starting to see Elixir around the edges. So you're starting to see metaprogramming and configuration done on the Elixir side. And my guess is that you'll start to see package management and testing and these types of things coded in Elixir and the rest of the system in Erlang. It's just the ability to make an expression that reads like English, but is so much more rich and dense than a typical line of Erlang. It's just, it's a very powerful. Yeah, I run the Erlang user group out here in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, and I've reached out to one of the other leads who does the Elixir user group, and they're starting back up, and it was one of those trying to see what we could do to kind of blend those two groups together, at least for some meetings, because Elixir seems to be bringing in a lot of new ideas and ways of thinking. But Erlang seems to have a bunch of different ideas as well that it seems like would even work for the Elixir area. Things like Dialyzer and Quick Check and Proper and a bunch of those other kind of areas. And then you have the way of thinking like Web Machine, which is just being able to take advantage of all of the concurrency and functional lists. And it seems like there's a lot of good ideas on both sides of the tables that, as you said, the blend of both of those together seemed like it would be a really interesting combination as well. Yeah, Web Machine was one that we took a look at in seven web frameworks in seven weeks, and that was Fred Dowd and Jack Moffat. 
they did a great job of basically laying out the strength, you know, what's different between a typical functional web framework and what's different in this specific framework. It's really a state machine come to life, which solves a lot of the back button type problems that you see in typical websites. But yeah, I agree with you. I think that the reason that Elixir has a chance to be so successful so fast is that it's building on a tremendous foundation. Well, more than a foundation, it's building on probably the richest, best distribution framework in the world. And when you can start with that, and then you're free to ramp your language up and go straight to the tools that are going to make new users more productive. And Erlang hasn't had to worry about that new user community for some time. And so you're seeing Elixir come in with things like Mix, which is the build tool that Erlang's kind of lacked with complete scriptability. And then you're seeing things like Hex package management. It's really uncanny. There was an interesting moment at the EUC in Stockholm, which is the Erlang Users Conference. And there were two sessions that were completely unrelated at the time. But one of them was called Why the Cool Kids Aren't Using Erlang. And it was basically a survey across a good cross-section of the Erlang community. And I can't remember his last name. I think it is Stuart. Uh, you'll have to check me on that. But anyway, so I went to this session that was, I mean, it looked like it was done by somebody who's pretty familiar with market research. and. He rolled up the survey answers into word clouds, and he talked about the types of people that he was talking to. And some of the things that the Erlang community was missing, and well, first, almost to a person, everybody in that ecosystem was passionate about Erlang and loves Erlang. And second, there were some critical things that need to happen for Erlang to grow. And those things were things like package management, build tools, and distributed debugging, and all the types of things that Elixir is needed. And then, so right after this talk, there was a guy named Eric Meadows Johnson, who's the only other member of the Elixir core team. And he talked about what Elixir was doing for new communities. And it looked like both those presentations were built in concert. So it seemed like every major gap in the Erlang community was filled with an Elixir tool. And the goal is to make these tools work across both ecosystems. And I think that's going to happen. So anyway, yeah, I agree with you. And I think that what we're going to see in the next couple of years is a much tighter working relationship between Erlang and Elixir communities. And you're going to see explosive growth in both places. Something to look forward to. You also mentioned seven web frameworks in seven weeks. And for those who are unfamiliar, you've got a whole series there, right? Because you've got your two books, the web frameworks, concurrency models, and databases, correct? Yeah, I mean, it actually, it wasn't, I didn't do this intentionally, right? So I've just found that people want to know breadth. That's kind of refreshing, right? Because this industry has been one that's looked at one true database model for 30-something years in relational databases, and one true language for going on 20 years now with Java. And actually based on the C++ style syntax, you know, if you include Java, C++, C, and JavaScript, that's had a chokehold on the industry for 40-something years. If you look at web frameworks, there's just kind of a handful of those that's powerful or that's popular. But I think that once people saw seven languages, they thought, hey, yes, it's not dangerous to know more. It actually, just like learning a spoken language, 
expands your horizons. You can go different places and you can understand different things. Learning different programming languages does the same thing. And learning different databases does the same thing. In fact, I really wasn't involved very much at all in the start of the Seven Web Frameworks book, but I loved what they were doing, so I got involved in that. And Dave Thomas actually asked me if I wanted to be a line editor for a set of books around this concept because he too recognized that it's an idea whose time has come, right? That we don't need another generation of silo programmers who only know how to do one thing and who resolve all of the problems that the people that came before them solved in a different way with a new set of libraries and, and labels it differently. And instead, we need to be generalists again. And we can be good generalists and better programmers by having that breadth of experience. Yeah, it's definitely a series that is on my reading list to go through. Problem is, every time I have a new guest here, they also add books to my reading list as well. So that gets a little tricky, but. Yeah, I completely agree. If you want to start with one, I would start with Paul Butcher's book on concurrency model, because this is a guy who's had deep experience with concurrency, and not just from one perspective, but from the perspective of how you do a Lambda architecture with map reduces, and how do you do the Erlang style actors, and what's the old style with threading and locking, and what are the trade-offs here, and where do you expect to see good performance, where do you expect to see the programming models break down. These are all kind of interesting things, and this is a book that really wouldn't have gotten written before this line was introduced. So I'm quite proud of it and quite excited about the work that Paul Bisher has done. So is there going to be like a Seven Forgotten Languages in Seven Weeks series where you go back and dig out gems from years in years ago? You want to write one? Part of me has been tempted about it. Yeah, yeah. Thinking of things, especially after having conversations with Fogus and seeing his book suggestion reads of things like Snowball and APL and a bunch of these other things where... Yeah, I mean, I've considered it. There's an obvious set of languages in there, right? Like Miranda, which kind of started the Snowball rolling for lazy languages. There's ML, which kind of started a whole family of very powerful languages with that kind of goes static typing. And there's Oz that has the interesting take on concurrency that you don't see. And there's all kinds of interesting concepts to explore. You mentioned Snowball, but there's also Self, which was a very early prototype-based language. And sometimes there's also Smalltalk, which I can't believe we haven't touched on yet. But yeah, I've often thought about the right person to write a seven historical languages book. But it needs to be somebody who can not just put together seven disjointed essays, but somebody who can tell a story. That's the hard part of such a book. But yeah, I'd love to see it. And we've had our eye on that idea for some time. I'm guessing with that as well, the story is not just the story between those languages, but probably the story of how they set the foundation of the languages we have today. It'd be my guess, correct? Yes. And I mean, the author's going to determine the story, but some of it's going to be about dead ends and why this idea didn't work, or maybe why this idea should have worked, and we need to come back to it. There would be some lessons about marketing and about what they did right and what they did wrong, and how the foundation that we're building on evolved over time, and maybe how some of these lesser players evolved to win over some of the... I mean, that lost to some more popular languages that were probably lesser languages. The one that comes to mind in that is the concept of Lisp versus the Algol C family languages, where 
back when Lisp was created, you had garbage collection and you had all these other constructs that only came around in the late 90s, 40 years later. Yeah, right. You had a language that was functional, symbolic, garbage collected, and gosh, you compare that to COBOL or Fortran, which were kind of the two things that were hot at the time. You think, why, oh, why do we do this to ourselves? And there are very good reasons, and most of them have a lot to do with marketing and don't have much to do with their power as a programming language. Well, I think we covered a lot. Is there anything else that we left out, or mainly anything you would like to plug and let people know about? Upcoming presentations, more promotions of the books, call to actions for people to reach out to you if they think they could tackle a historical book, anything along those lines or more? Yeah, I would love to see a family of authors that want to attack a 797 book. Remember, the criteria is that the person needs to be able to write effectively about seven different things, but also they need to pull those seven different things into a unified story. And it's not easy, but it's gratifying. I don't have any authors who wouldn't write the book again if they had a chance. It's, it's a tremendously rewarding, but a tremendously difficult process. Speaking of gratifying, I think I heard a story from you that you didn't actually tell, and it may just reinforce it for anybody who's thinking about it, was I think you mentioned the first time you met Jose Valim. He wanted the book signed or something like that, correct? You guys were essentially exchanging fanboyisms? Yes, yes. So I basically handed him Dave Thomas's programming Elixir book for him to sign. He handed me the Seven Languages book. Turns out that the original Seven Languages book was a big part of the inspiration for Elixir. And in fact, he's writing the foreword for this next book. And one of the things he says was that the thing that's different about the language family in this book is that many of these languages are under active development and that the readers will have an opportunity not just to learn the language, but become core contributors and shape it. That sounds like a good motivation for anybody who's kind of thought about spending some time writing a book and has appreciated the seven languages if they could pull off the stories. So where can people track you down and find you online if they want to follow you and keep up with what's going on? Probably Twitter is the best way. I've never been an active blogger because most of my writing energy goes into my books. But I'm at Red Rabbits at Twitter. And before we wrap up the podcast, let me thank you for what you've done with this particular line of podcasts. It's great for me to be able to kind of look and see what some of my heroes are doing. I mean, I saw that you had Simon Peyton Jones and a lot of people that I really look up to. But thank you for pulling all this together. Thank you for the kind words. It's been enjoyable. This is my kind of outlet, I think, for having something like your seven seven series books where it's the ability to kind of keep that wide range and keep that eye out on what's coming up and then being able to share it with everybody. Absolutely. Well, I think we covered pretty much everything. It doesn't sound like there's anything else you have to add, is there? Nope, I think that's it. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo, and once again I would like to thank Bruce Tate for giving his time to join me today. It was a real pleasure talking with you today. You as well. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.